ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the Industrial Revolution and the speed of the Digital Revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com slash ETFs to learn more. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Dave Nottig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. And I've got to tell you, we have a very interesting topic. We're going to discuss whether DeFi, decentralized finance, will ultimately replace ETFs. And before you think this is some sort of crazy talk, pie-in-the-sky stuff, you should know that Wisdom Tree has filed for a treasury fund which actually starts heading down this path. So this fund is going to maintain its official record of share ownership on the blockchain, and shareholders can utilize blockchain wallets to hold shares. This is a real filing out there. So Dave and I will likely lightly scratch the surface on that topic, and then you will have to bear with me. I do want to ask Dave about Bitcoin ETFs uh, because he and I haven't had a chance to visit since the first Bitcoin ETFs launch. So I do want to get his take on those as well. I'll then be joined by Keith Lawson, Deputy General Counsel Tax Law at the Investment Company Institute, ICI, who's the leading association representing regulated funds globally. And ICI has been extremely outspoken against this proposed ETF tax change that was put forth by Senator Ron Wyden back in September. This would eliminate what I call the tax magic of ETFs, right? The in-kind redemption of ETF shares without having to recognize taxable gains. Now, this proposed change isn't actually in the current bill that's being worked through right now. However, it could very easily reappear at any time And I also think now that this topic has been broached, who knows when it might pop back up down the road. So we're going to dive all into this issue. And as a bonus treat, if Dave Nottig is kind enough, I'm going to have him stick around for that as well. Uh, The three of us will explain everything going on and some of the potential ramifications. And then to close this week, really looking forward to this, I'll be joined by Bill Davis, founder of Stance Capital, 
who specializes in taking a quantitative approach to ESG investing. And back in March, they launched the Stance Equity ESG Large Cap Core ETF, ticker STNC, actually converted some uh, SMA assets into this ETF, and they're using one of the quote-unquote semi-transparent structures, the blue tractor-shielded alpha structure. So we'll spotlight that ETF. And then I really think you'll want to hear Bill's views on ESG investing. Uh, This is someone who I feel like offers a very well-rounded and balanced perspective on this topic. And I think everyone knows I'm an ESG skeptic, but I am really impressed with how Bill views the world here. And I will hit him with some of my usual ESG rebuttals, but I think you'll see this isn't someone just slapping an ESG label on an ETF. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Dave Nodding. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Well, if only, if, if only we had a few things to talk about, Nate. I, I don't know what we're going to talk about today. I am always so <laughs> ambitious with the podcast topics. Uh, I always try to shoehorn in like four hours worth of content into one, but I, I like it. It's fun. <laughs> so look, let's actually start on the Bitcoin ETF topic, because I think once we get into DeFi, it's all over, right? We're not going to have time for anything else. <laughs> So uh, let's just start with Bitcoin. <laughs> that's right. So look, you and I haven't chatted since the first Bitcoin futures ETFs rolled out. I offered the same opportunity last week to Laura Krigger. I, I feel like you're at least owed a few minutes to comment on this, just given that you and I have literally covered this on the podcast for years. So just briefly, what have been your thoughts on investor demand for these products, how they've traded, position limits. Just give us your first impressions. Yeah, I, to be honest, it feels uh, a little anticlimactic because it's kind of gone according to plan. And I don't mean that to make it sound like we were all geniuses. But I think a lot of us in the ETF side of the house had a few priors going in that the structure would work fine. Check. That's true. Uh, that there'd be a lot of initial demand. Check. That's true. Uh, that it would trade like water, check, that's true. So the only thing that's really up, up for grabs is how is it done since the launch? Uh, and the answer is it slotted itself in as a bridge trading tool, which is exactly kind of where we were talking about this slotting in, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we thought we weren't going to get a, a physical, but we would get a futures, right? So what you get in the futures is a lot of liquidity, a lot of bridging capability for people who are hedging risk across multiple markets. That's great. There's a natural cap on how much activity like that there is. That's a very different group of traders in a very different market than, say, uh, some advisor who wants to put 4% of his client's money into Bitcoin and is looking for vehicles. I don't think the ITO and BTF, its major competitor right now, are, are necessarily going to be that for most financial advisors and most investors. I think it's going to remain a very liquid, you know, one uh, basis point spread trading vehicle for people who are looking to play, quote unquote, 
crypto intraday, that's great. That's a useful tool. It's really helpful in risk management. It's helpful in liquidity management. But I don't think it's the be-all, end-all. I think most people are still looking for better solutions for long-term exposure. You mentioned the structure working fine, which is absolutely true. I know the uh, BITO, they had a roll into December futures a bit early, but that's not really a a big surprise. But one thing I did want to ask you about, there was this piece in Bloomberg last week from uh, Katie Greenfield, uh, who reported that the reason additional Bitcoin futures ETFs haven't launched yet is because of uh, issues with futures commission merchants, FCMs. I got to tell you, I feel like I learn something new every day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were expecting launches from VanEck and Galaxy, advisor shares, and all of those have been delayed, apparently at least partially because of this issue. Can, can you explain this again? I know this doesn't get into the ETF structural side. It's yeah, really on the other side. But what's the role of FCMs and what's the issue here? So a futures com- uh, so an FCM effectively acts like a clearing member in the old membership exchange model, right? They're the they're the one who is technically interfacing with the entire settlement infrastructure. An FCM is the one who technically collects margin from the broker, from the client who's actually purchasing a futures contract or, or entering a futures contract, I should say. So they have to collect that margin. They're the ones who disperse the cash on settlement. So they sort of act as this agent. They're not quite a market maker. They're not necessarily out there buying, you know, setting the prices. Most of them, of course, are also market makers, right? I mean, everybody does everything in this business, right? Um, but the FCM has this sort of plumbing role in the system. And one of the issues there is they're on the hook for capital, right? So they're the ones that are, are sort of one of the guaranteeing members of the settlement process. And therefore, if you're asking a lot of a narrow market, which the Bitcoin futures market was pretty narrow in terms of number of participants for obvious reasons, because you have to offset that risk outside of the traditional economic markets, that's an issue. So I don't. I think this is probably a very short-term issue. I think this is a matter of people, you know, rearranging a few balance sheet items to get the capital they need to be able to feel confident that they could, you know, be one of the major players behind another, you know, billion-dollar Bitcoin futures ETF. Uh, so I think it's. I think it is a short-term stopgap issue, not a long-term hurdle. And my guess is they were probably slightly caught off guard just with the initial demand for the ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF. You know, you had what 1.1, 1.2 billion dollars went into that fund yeah, pretty quickly, and it, it's it's plateaued. There hasn't been much into that fund since then. Any idea how Valkyrie got around this? Like, was it just good luck, good timing on their well, part in smaller, launching? Right. Yeah, some of it is just is that they're smaller. Um, the other thing is that, you know, because these really kind of launched at the same time, I and mean, we're talking about, you know, what, 72 hours between approvals or something like that in terms of business hours. So I, I, most of these deals and setups were already put in place. I think this is, is a, a bit of a pause from some of those major players. There are only so many players in the market right now that are doing this kind of work, um, and they all need to make sure that they feel comfortable with their capital requirements. By the way, one of the uh, great ETF mysteries right now is why Invesco pulled their Bitcoin futures launch. So if my timing's right, they could have launched the same day as uh, as ProShares or the day after. Are you surprised they pulled that launch? Um, not so much. I mean, once you know you're not going to be first in something like this, uh, it doesn't strike me as a terrible idea to have a little bit of a strategic think on this. Mm-hmm. I don't think that... 
um, Valkyrie somehow now owns second place and nobody will ever supplant them. I think actually second through whatever place in this space are wide open. I think it will be difficult for people to come in and replace the liquidity of Bitto because they already got the options contracts listed on it. So that's going to be the default for a lot of investors. Uh, and we should point out that's another huge component here, right? Most folks have not been able to get any optionality into their crypto exposure without really going deep into the crypto weeds, right? Trading crypto derivatives on native crypto exchanges. That is way beyond what most people who are not crypto natives are going to want to do. So having options on Bitto really opens up that market for people who may just want to take a flyer or maybe want to legitimately hedge. So I, I think the second through fifth positions here are really wide open. I don't think it matters who launches next to get that. I think it's who launches better. All right. Before we move on, I ask you this every time we, we cover this topic. Any new thoughts on timing for a spot Bitcoin ETF? We continue to see filings. BlockFi yesterday. Uh, we, we've had a ton of issuers throw their name in the hat. A any thoughts on, on what kind of timing we're looking at there? Uh, well, let's see. I'm turning 55. Uh, I'm planning on retiring when I'm about 62. So that's about my guess. <laughs> oh, man. Seven, seven years. Uh, look. Anybody who has actually cracked open the infrastructure bill and seen, like, none of the things that everybody was all up in arms about crypto got out of the bill. They're all still in there. All these issues around, you know, is coin, is every person who's managing a swap pool all of a sudden a broker with KYC requirement? All that stuff's still in there. That's getting signed into law. The amount of stuff the crypto community has to get through before we can even talk about getting a Bitcoin ETF launch is enormous. And I think this is one of the big problems with decentralization. If there's nobody in charge, there's nobody to go to Washington. And that is, I think, going to be one of the Achilles heels of this next two to three year window. Uh, the, the, the community at large really needs to get there. You know what together. All right. That's the perfect segue. And by the way, I was reading some of that bill last night. I think you're right. You, you know, we've talked about this before, that the innovation occurring in crypto is happening at such a fast pace that regu regulations have no chance of keeping up with it at this point. I mean, I feel like D.C. is so far behind. Politicians are so far behind what's going on here that it's going to be difficult. But look, anytime I talk Bitcoin ETFs, as we just were, there's always a healthy contingent of people where, uh, there, there's like angry pushback. And the response is, well, why are we trying to wrap this new technology of Bitcoin and crypto into an old investment vehicle? And I feel like their sentiment is, instead, we should be trying to figure out how to tokenize ETFs, right? Effectively wrap mm -hmm. ETFs in crypto, not the other way around. Now, again, with a caveat that you and I could easily spend hours discussing this, <laughs> and maybe we will at some point. I, I, I want to touch on the regular, regulatory part, but I'll, I'll just simply ask... Is that where this is all heading at some point, that, that ETFs and everything else, whether you want to say mutual funds or stocks, bonds, that everything will ultimately be tokenized? Oh, God, yes, absolutely. I, to me, that is, that is as clear as looking outside and seeing clouds and knowing at some point they will part and there will be sun and blue sky. Uh, it seems utterly inconceivable to me that we don't end up in a world of tokenized asset management. Um, I, it is just a matter of time. Tokenization, I mean, if you think about it, share certificates are tokenized asset management. They're just really old tech. 
And all we keep doing is changing the nature and the way we use the tokens that signify ownership and economic interest. Now, the problem we have is we've now invented the next obvious incredible technology for doing this, and we skipped the entire part of the process where we build a regulatory and legal framework to enable it. So we've now got a, it, I, I'm sure there are examples, but in my experience, this is a little bit unprecedented. Even on the internet, you know, back in the early 90s, and I was on all these standards committees, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to move money around the internet. Even then, we were trying to figure out the legal framework before anybody went out there and built the tech. Now we've done the opposite. We built the tech. It works. We know how to do instantaneous settlement. We know how to, we know how to do forking. We know how to do all of these incredible things that you need to be able to do to do tokenized asset management. We just have zero regulatory infrastructure that allows it. For the layman, what, what does this look like? So I, I don't know if you take creation redemption, does that happen via smart contracts? You, you mentioned yeah, instantaneous so, trade settlement, like just high level. What does this look like if you tokenize ETFs? So the really simple example is look at something called Index Co-op, at Index Co-op on Twitter, or you can find it anywhere you want, or Index Coop, if you want to say it that way. Um, what these guys have done is they developed a standard Ethereum smart contract, which is in of itself a set of instructions to acquire various tokens that are themselves also on the Ethereum blockchain that represent digital assets. Those tokens we think of as being part of the metaverse, if you will. Um, and so any exposure that you can bake into a blockchain token, whether through a liquidity pool, which is how those things tend to do, where you're trading one asset versus another, uh, or whether it's something like what FTX is doing in Europe, where they're actually holding Tesla stock in an account and then tokenizing that and trading the tokens that represent the amount in the, the actual brokerage account. Once you do that and you have a Tesla token, now I can just take that same smart contract at Index Co-op and say, hey, we're going to put Tesla, a Tesla token in there. And by the way, this is the waiting mechanism baked into the contract. Anybody who wants some of this index, just go to the smart contract, put in your U.S. dollar coin. You get one of these tokens out that is the index. That in turn is ownership of these underlying tokens. So this is a solved living product in many places in the DeFi space already. The only problem is we're not trading tokens that have any legal claim on assets we associate with investing, i.e. stocks, bonds, other securities. Do you think we ultimately end up with 24-7 markets in, in stocks and bonds and everything else? Absolutely. Right. And again, the only thing holding us back is the regulatory environment. If you live in Germany right now, you can just sit on your FTX account and trade Tesla all day long. Right. And there's an open market for it. And you can trade it against you can do direct swap of you know Tesla versus IBM if you can get somebody to take the other side of that. Right. So there's all sorts of incredible stuff that is already there. It's none of it's in the U.S. OK, so on the regulatory side, it's interesting. So I think it was last year, the uh, SEC, when uh, Chairman Jay Clayton was there, they actually messaged that they'd be open to the tokenization of ETFs and that clearly it would fall under their regulatory purview. So. Point being, this is already on the radar of the SEC, but what do you think's realistic here? I know it's a shot in the dark, but but for the SEC and regulators to catch up to that innovation I was alluding to earlier, how how like what time frame are we looking at? Uh, you know, I think we're in this very dangerous and exciting liminal space. Um, I actually, if I was a betting person, I don't think we get this right. 
Like, I, 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 I'm not a Pollyanna about this. I don't see evidence that Washington is about to release a regulatory framework which lets us all go, aha, all we need to do is stand up a blockchain that looks like this and has these kinds of participants and has this kind of you know, ability for regulators to do transparent oversight, and then well, everything will be fine. Like, that's what we need. We need a comprehensive, securitized crypto regulatory framework. We ain't going to get one, I don't think. I hope I'm wrong. So instead, what we're going to do is be fighting all of these skirmishes around the edges of the big problem. Um, those are still really important skirmishes to fight and win. They're going to show up in places like what we're seeing in stable coins, which is you know one of the key functions of this. If you're going to have tokenized asset management, tokenized cash is step one. So everybody who's like, why are they focused on stable coins? That's why, because if you can't talk about cash, you can't talk about anything else. Uh, so from there, we're going to then fight about, well, OK, how do you actually do securities transactions on a blockchain in a way that the SEC will let you? And we'll get there slowly. And a lot of the folks in DeFi are getting there. I know you want to talk about Wisdom Tree. That's part of the bridging here. No, it's been frustrating, I guess, from my standpoint, because you look at something like a Bitcoin ETF, which seems so simple from a regulatory standpoint, but they, they haven't been able to get that done. So we start branching out and talking about tokenizing assets. And I just I'm, I'm skeptical. I agree with you in, in terms of building out a regulatory framework. The stable coins are interesting to me because there's been talk about them falling under banking laws, which that opens up a whole nother can of worms. But yeah, on the, on the Wisdom Tree side, Dave, I mentioned at the top the Wisdom Tree Digital Short-Term Treasury Fund. So Wisdom Tree filed for this uh, back in April. The fund itself is nothing noteworthy, right? It would hold U.S. Treasuries with maturities of between oh, it, one and three I years. But by definition, the most boring thing they could possibly think of to put in this record. 100%. 100% intentional. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is the ownership of the fund shares will be recorded on the blockchain. And shareholders would need a blockchain wallet, which I believe Wisdom Tree is going to provide through an app to, to hold this. Have you crawled into this in, in any detail? Oh, Have gosh, you looked at that yeah, filing? Deep, what, what do you think? Deep down this rabbit hole. So the idea here is instead of using a traditional transfer agency mechanism, which is a central server that keeps track of the fact that Nate owns 12 shares of whatever, uh, they're going to instead record that ownership on the Stellar blockchain. Stellar is a different blockchain. It has some security features. It has some KYC features that make this possible. Um, specifically, what that means, however, is that you know that you can only transact directly in this through a Stellar wallet. I apologize if I get all this wrong. Things are changing so fast they could have refiled this and completely changed the tech. But the, when I looked at this three weeks ago, that was the idea, that the way you get around a lot of these KYC issues is I can only buy this fund if I have a Stellar wallet on my phone, presumably. Um, and when I go buy shares, that wallet has embedded in it some of that KYC ID, right? So they know who I am. They understand my tax situation, all that kind of stuff. So it, it allows the wallet to act effectively as my account from a legal and regulatory perspective. So this is a 180-degree opposite approach to how you solve this problem, which is build something designed to be regulated under the current system and start playing with that. And I think that's where we're at on this. I think this is literally a start playing with it mood. I don't think that Wisdom Tree or anybody else thinks that all of a sudden there's going to be a billion dollars in this treasury fund. I think the idea is get it trading, get it moving, see what people do with it, see whether you can generate some adoption. Now that brings up the question, okay, well, if these – Things are now tracked on the Stellar blockchain. Can I, as a holder, then say, 
put my shares into a pool so that I could do liquidity staking? Could I put them as part of a swap so other people can get exposure to my investment, but I'm giving them that exposure in exchange for some collateral effectively? All of those things remain to be seen. All of them start breaking a lot of the regulatory issues. But yeah. that's the idea. Let's start playing with it. Yeah, I think that's the key, right? Uh, it's a bridge. As you've talked about a lot, I've mentioned in the past, this is a first step down that path. And interestingly, you actually flagged some comments for me last week that were on Wisdom Tree's latest earnings call. And I actually want to read these uh, real quick, and then you can comment them, uh, comment on them if you want. These are from Wisdom Tree CEO Jonathan Steinberg. Um, so he said, quote, ETFs are almost 30 years old now. I think the next 30 years, you're going to be talking about regulated tokens. It's going to prove to be the new wrapper. He also said, quote, I believe that over the next five years, we will be recognized as a DeFi business that has an ETF business. We're set a different way. We're in the business of transparent exposures, whether we're doing it in regulated tokens or through ETFs. Those were striking to me. This is coming from a top 10 ETF issuer. Well, remember that they're playing in other markets than this one. They're already True. a quite successful player in the European crypto ETF market, right? So they're at the front end of this, just not in the United States. Again, with everything else, we're so blind to the innovation that's happening around the rest of the world because of this regulatory gap. So uh, it's not surprising to, for me to hear Jono talking about it that way. It, they've been clear that this is the future of the business for a while. I think they're one of the few firms that actually has the court vision to see this out. My concern, actually, is that they're a publicly traded company, and a lot of the investments we're talking about here are going to be multi-year, right? I mean, the same conversation about the metaverse, right? We're talking about a five- to ten-year build-out, not a next-quarter build-out. Public investors tend to be very fickle, so I wish them a ton of luck. I'm fully supportive of the exploration that they're making here. I worry a little bit about the short-term nature of shareholders. Well, we'll have to pause there on this topic. I have a feeling you and I are going to be covering this uh, throughout the next five <laughs> I retire. Ten years. Yeah. That's right. But, uh, Dave, great stuff. You want to stick around here and talk ETF taxation? Nothing would make me happier. All right. Hang, hang tight. That was ETF Trends. Dave Nodig. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I am now joined by Keith Lawson, Deputy General Counsel Tax Law at the Investment Company Institute, ICI, who's the leading association representing regulated funds globally. Keith is joining me from Washington, D.C. Keith, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. Glad to be here. Okay, so I also have ETF Trends Dave Nodig on the line with us, who I would say has been tracking this ETF taxation issue since the very beginning. 
And I thought it'd be insightful for the three of us to have sort of a roundtable discussion on this topic. It's clearly an important issue facing the industry right now. Uh, and Dave's previously highlighted that. Look, changing the way ETFs are taxed would be extremely easy, right? It's literally removing one line in the tax code. So this is something that would be very easy to implement, but it could have an enormous impact on investors. So let's do this. I'm going to briefly set the scene here, and then I'll open up the conversation. But Dave, thanks for joining us as well. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm dying to hear Keith's thoughts here. Okay, so back in September... Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden put forth a piece of draft legislation, which, among other things, it included eliminating the in-kind redemption tax deferral of ETFs. I call this the tax magic of ETFs, which we can certainly get into because this isn't magic in that your taxes go away. It's just that you pay taxes when you sell, which I think is much more fair. But in a nutshell, because of how ETFs create and redeem shares, they're extremely tax efficient. And so, Keith, let's start there. Let's start in the weeds, and then we can certainly broaden out, because I think it's important for everyone to understand some of the basic mechanics here. Do you want to explain what Wyden's proposal would do? Well, Nate, I think you already did it. It would repeal the the in-kind redemption provision. I mean, but just to go back a little bit, I'll try not to get too far into the weeds. Um, Subchapter in the Internal Revenue Code, which applies to mutual funds and ETFs, is a general matter. Taxes, there's an echo here, so if I lose my mind, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Subchapter M taxes funds on their income, and they can get a deduction for that income if they distribute the income to investors. And in 1969, Congress concluded that it was appropriate to allow funds because there were no ETFs in 1969, to distribute securities in kind to investors without any tax consequences to the remaining shareholders. And in our view, the purpose for the 1969 legislation, which is to protect investors from actions of others, applies equally to ETFs. Okay, so what do you think brought this to the forefront? Why Why did this come up now? Well, there have been some articles in the in the in the papers and there've been some law review articles about this treatment and um authors sometimes don't appreciate fully the role that authorized participants play in the ETF um at create and redeem process and I think that's that's part of it and some somebody clearly went to Wyden's office and said this is something that you should take a look at it might raise some money okay and I want to focus Keith, go ahead go ahead Keith uh, so one one question about this, you know, I, I think you know people get hung up on this idea that somehow ETF investors are sort of free riding on the tax code because we're we're all hanging out waiting to pay our taxes when we actually sell. But I think the other piece of this is heartbeat trading. Do you think that those are are sort of tied together? Because on the one hand, it seems very sensible and fair to say, hey, I'm not going to be impacted by the investors of others. But on the other hand, you see some of these enormous, you know, a billion dollars in, a billion dollars out on a two-day window solely for the purposes of washing gains out of a portfolio. I think that may be part of the issue. This has become a a bit of a cause celeb in D.C. Do you see them as extricable issues or are they just all one and the same to you? Well, as Nate pointed out, the provision applies just broadly. Um, Clearly, there there was an article that that I... I think, Dave, you know well, that, that had charts showing the heartbeat trades. And that certainly is something that 
got the attention of, of the congressional tax writing staffs. Okay. Yeah, so that would be Elizabeth Kashner's piece from FactSet where she was highlighting that. So, so yeah, Zach and Ryder had one, too. Keith, Keith, as I understand it, this widened proposal on ETF taxation, it isn't currently in the bill that's being worked through, but obviously the back and forth on this bill could drag on. And as I mentioned earlier, this would be very easy to add back in. Can you just talk about how these bills are typically negotiated, sort of the back and forth and and how the legislative process works here? Yeah, (laughs) I guess it depends a little bit. I mean, this is a bill being done under the Senate reconciliation provisions, which requires um, 50 votes and then, you know, the vice president to break any tie. And so it's different from normal legislation where there's much more of a bipartisan back and forth. You know, the House had extensive hearings on their bill. The Senate has not had hearings. You know, Chairman Wyden has made a number of proposals, including um, the partnership discussion draft that you mentioned that has one non-partnership provision, which is the uh, 852B6 repeal proposal. There are also derivatives proposals, and it looks like the bill is really being negotiated at the moment, you know, amongst leadership. The, the you know, there is the House bill that's, that's really the starting point, but now you see um, discussions between the House and Senate leadership and a couple of senators who, you know, have, have decided that, you know, they really want everybody else to understand their views before they make any decisions as to whether to support the bill or not. So it's kind of an unusual, a bit of an unusual process this time around. Um, and, you know, one of the issues is going to be um, revenue. There, for example, is a provision in the House bill to reduce the tax gap by funding the IRS. That provision has not yet been scored by the CBO. The White House scored it at $400 billion. They're, you know, Washington academic types that think that that number is way too high. And so if the CBO score comes in way under $400 billion, there'll be a need for additional revenues. And so, I mean, as you, as you point out, Nate, it's, you know, it's still a work in progress. And, you know, to the extent that there are, um, you know, less revenue being collected from the proposals than needed to, to meet all of the, the spending provisions, either you cut spending provisions or, or you increase revenue in some fashion. Dave, on this topic, I mean, do you have any thoughts on how much revenue this would really raise? Because I feel like investors are, are pretty efficient at avoiding taxes, right? They're, they're, they might just contribute more to retirement accounts or we're yeah. going to look for other investment vehicles. I know you've talked about that, but the point being, this may not end up being the tax generator that some are hoping for. There, there have been a number of attempts to try to figure out what that number might be. That number sort of ranged around like kind of 20 billion a year is a number I've heard kicked around. Um, again, remember, it's always robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? You're always get taxing now, but then again, the tax revenue you would collect doesn't have the opportunity to get bigger because you're collecting it now, right? So th- there's a little bit of a, you know, when, the, when you let investors tax defer, you're actually allowing the government to invest alongside those investors to collect more tax later. I understand that's a very Pollyanna way of looking at it. Um, but, but I think there, that is fundamentally the trade-off, right? The, you take less tax now or more tax later. Keith, on this note of fairness that I mentioned earlier, and I, I want to walk through an example here in a moment, but can you talk about who this proposal might ultimately impact? I know ICI has been very vocal uh, against this. I've seen public comments from your CEO, Eric Pan, that uh, have been pretty critical. And if I were to summarize 
I would say the basic message is that this change wouldn't be closing some quote-unquote tax loophole for wealthy investors, but instead that this could hurt everyday Americans. Uh, I'd love to have you expand on that. Can you explain why that's the case? Sure, sure. No, I'm happy to. First, this provision also is used by mutual funds. It's obviously not used as frequency because you don't have authorized participants um, dealing with you know, trading imbalances, you know, supply and demand issues, which is the, the reason for the APs in the ETF space. Um, so there are some mutual fund investors that benefit, for example, when a large retirement account wants to move out of a particular fund into another fund, where the mutual fund will in-kind securities out to pre- and thereby prevent the distributions to the remaining shareholders. In the ETF space, there are almost 12 million ETF-owning households. 92% of them have income below $400,000, and the medium the median income of those um, households is 125000 which is obviously way below the $400,000 threshold that the president set when he was campaigning for um, Americans who would not be impacted by tax increases. Well, and one of the interesting points that I've seen Eric make is just how this might impact younger investors who are now preferring ETFs. And his point was that you know, unfortunately, right now, there are a lot of sideshows going on in the market where younger investors are looking at areas like meme stocks and crypto. And if you take an investment vehicle like ETFs and perhaps make it a little less attractive, you could be discouraging long term investing at a time, again, when many younger investors are looking at get rich quick options. Uh, I think that's an interesting point, Dave. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the the tax code has been used intentionally to encourage long term investing, right? I mean, if you look at everything that we've done with the four hundred one k, you look at you know the you know default allocations and target date funds. I, I think that that is generally a noble good. I, I'm actually much more concerned about the longer term implications of what that means for the markets. But from a tax perspective, I think the weight is always going to be towards that you know, doing the best by the long-term investor. Part of the reason I'm kind of anti all these things about the ETF taxation issue is that it seems to be going against that, right? You're, you're actually, you know, going back and saying, actually, we, we, we let you defer a little bit too much. We'd like to get more of that money now, which is sort of the opposite of most of the regulatory push for the last 60 years. So it would be a weird, uh, I think, turnaround on that because it's not like we're creating a, you know, a, a new tax code to get rid of the carried interest loophole or anything like that. This is just a straight up deciding whether you want it to be short term or long term. So what do you think happens moving forward? Keith, I'll start with you. Let's say this proposal doesn't make it into the final bill. Do you think this is something that's going to continue hanging over ETFs forever now? How do you see this playing out? Well, it depends in part on what the revenue score is. Um, you know, the, the Joint Committee on Taxation every other year has a list of so-called tax expenditures. And this provision has been listed as a tax expenditure since 2008, but there's never been a revenue estimate on repealing 852b6. I, I assume that Chairman Wyden has asked for an estimate on all of his partnership discussion draft provisions, including this one. I'm not aware that one's been received yet. That when when the chairman um, int- introduced his proposal, um, he estimated that the entire partnership provision would raise $172 billion over 10 years. And, you know, I've heard suggestions that the ETF provision in and of itself raises $200 billion, which makes no sense because the rest of the partnership provisions would then be losing revenue. So it's hard to tell how much money would be raised. You know, if it is a significant number, it sort of cuts both ways. It makes it more interesting to people who are looking for revenue to pay for other things. It also 
really helps our argument that you're harming moderate income investors saving for the long term. So you yeah. know exactly what happens is is it, we're just going to have to wait and see. I think. Dave, we will of course remain vigilant. I mean that's the that's the bottom line here. The guys yeah. remain very vigilant. On I, I, I feel like Keith and I have just said the same thing in two different directions, right? I think we're both saying that this is really going to be about you know are you penalizing sort of those moderate investors now at the expense of what they might pay later? I, I it it always feels very much a robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? Somebody's going to pay, and it's just a question of who pays when. Uh, this is a hard one to spin as a tax the rich. I have to tell you. Yeah, you know the thing I struggle with, and I, this gets into the the fairness aspect of ETFs, which will probably be more in your wheelhouse, Dave. Uh, is just that you, you look at the structure of ETFs, and investors pay taxes when they sell, not not when other investors sell or fund managers make changes. And if I walk through a, a crude example, um, look, look, let's say I own shares of an actively managed mutual fund. Dave, you own the same fund, and I want to sell some shares to, of course, buy Bitcoin, right? So I put in my sell request, and in order to meet that redemption, the mutual fund may need to sell shares of stock held by the fund to raise the cash in order to pay me. Now, if they sell that stock at a gain, that could impact all of the fund shareholders because the mutual fund is required by law to distribute any net gains to everyone, including Dave. And so the end result here is, you know, I wanted to buy Bitcoin, and because of that, Dave, you might get a taxable capital gain distribution, even though you didn't do anything. And I, I know that this can happen in an ETF if you get a, a, a whole slew of redemptions. But, you know, the bottom line is, is this structure has made ETFs more tax efficient, having the in-kind creation re- redemption. You know, if I, and, you know, I think the other thing, too, is if I want to sell my ETF shares, I just go into my Schwab account, right? Hit sell doesn't impact the fund. It just feels like that's a more fair way to do things from my perspective. Well, obviously, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, that's, yeah, that's just what I, sh- I struggle with here. It, you know, you're still paying taxes. You're just going to pay them when you sell down the line. And uh, yeah, I, I think that I think th- this is why I think what may end up being the real issue is heartbeat trading. And I think right. that, that is a, if that is something regulators really want to clamp down on, largely because of optics, I would think uh, that's I think there are other tools to do that. Right. They're directed trade rules. Like, I, I'm not actually sure we need new legislation to do that. Keith, before I let you go, any uh, any parting words? No, I think I already gave them the ICI will remain vigilant on behalf of fund investors. Well, Keith, really, awesome. really appreciate the insight. Again, obviously a very important topic for the industry uh, and more importantly for investors. So thank you for taking the time. And uh, Dave, always a pleasure. Thank you as well. Happy Thanks for having me. Thanks. That was Keith Lawson, Deputy General Counsel, Tax Law at the Investment Company Institute. And Dave Nottig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC.
My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Bill Davis, founder of Stance Capital, who specializes in quantitative ESG asset management and research. And earlier this year, they launched their first ETF. It's the Stance Equity ESG Large Cap Core ETF, ticker STNC. Bill is now on the line with me from Boston. Bill, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the strategy being offered in STNC, this was actually first offered via separately managed accounts, SMAs, and you made the decision to put this into an ETF wrapper. Uh, now, we're going to cover a lot as it pertains to the ETF itself and uh, certainly ESG investing overall, but I'd love to have you start by talking about that decision. Why, why decide to go the ETF route? Uh, yeah, sure. So actually, we had been available as a separate account in SMA and also through model delivery, uh, actually going back on the SMA side, going back to 2014. So um, close to an eight-year track record. And uh, we are um, are very active. And uh, for taxable clients, it made a lot more sense to consider a structure other than an SMA simply because of the, you know, the inherent tax advantages within the ETF structure. And so I'd say that was one of the reasons, uh, you know, just better tax management for taxable clients. I'd say the second reason is that the SMA um, or the, the underlying strategy of, of Stance ESG Large Cap Core um, is semi-concentrated, typically holding about 50 positions. And uh, as a result of that, we ended up with a composite minimum of $150,000 within the separate account. And so, you know, the second advantage of an ETF, of course, is that we could really democratize access to the ETF for, say, smaller uh, investors who, you know, might want to invest 25000 or 85000 or some other number, you know, lower than 150000 And then I would say um, sort of less important, but there is a third reason, and that is that most of our uh, of our assets actually come through other financial advisors, whether they be broker-dealers or banks or RIAs. And uh, frankly, I think buying a ticker symbol is in many ways the preferred, um, you know, approach to investing in any strategy. And so that's not really an argument for an ETF versus, say, a mutual fund, but uh, getting to a ticker symbol was important to us, and the ETF just made so much more sense from a tax standpoint than a mutual fund. Okay, so explain the strategy itself. You mentioned it's semi-concentrated. Obviously, this is actively managed. You're seeking companies with strong ESG indicators. What does the investment process look like, and what does this ETF end up holding? Right. So we, um, well, first of all, we invest in members of the S&P 500. So we're in the largest, most liquid segment of the economy. Um, secondly, we seek to invest at the intersection of what I would describe as strong underlying fundamentals and relative to industry group peers' attention to environmental, social governance, off-balance sheet risks and opportunities. And so that's there's kind of a lot to unpack there. But one way to think about it is there are three parts to portfolio construction for us. The first part is an ESG uh, process that is entirely uh, rules-based. And, and I should say that we're systematic in pretty much everything we do. But when you're talking about ESG, 
it's hard to describe it as purely quantitative. So I would say in our case, the ESG component is rules-based. We uh, basically have developed uh, 24 material risk factors, which we refer to as, you know, key performance indicators or KPIs, uh, that could apply to any company in the universe, uh, but but are essentially applied by industry group. And so an industry group like, you know, automotive parts might have, um, you know, 18 of the 24 KPIs apply to it, and uh, whereas banks might only be eight. So essentially, Within each industry group, we are quantitatively ranking and scoring companies against industry group peers on the KPIs that are relevant to that group, uh, and then we're impact weighting them. And in doing all of that, we end up uh, essentially eliminating half of the S&P 500, which is sort of obvious because we're keeping the top half of every group and getting rid of the bottom half. But before we do the final scoring, we also crowdsource data from trusted, mostly NGOs, but not always. In fact, Norges Bank, we get data feeds uh, through Norges Bank around um, uh, human rights violations and environmental risks. But generally speaking, it's NGOs looking at issues like farm animal welfare and illegal logging and palm oil deforestation. And if a company that's in our uh, target universe is also kind of uh, identified as a laggard by one of these trusted resources, then um, they essentially get a point deduction. And so this ESG component of portfolio construction gives us both uh, sort of a traditional view of what companies are saying about themselves and where the momentum is, plus we then get more of a kind of a front windshield uh, update from NGOs and it enables us to essentially eliminate what we think are um, companies that represent uh, ESG risk. Uh, we set those names aside. Let's just say it's a couple hundred companies uh, after all that work. The second part of the process involves a machine learning approach that looks at over 20 years of company-specific filing data, historical market data, looks at the current market conditions, uh, does, throw, does so through a lens of about 50 or so uh, fundamental financial and risk factors and attempts to predict uh, which factors are most uh, correlated with um, total return and alpha uh, for a three-month look forward. And so that process essentially uh, retains the 50% uh, of the S&P 500. So now we've got two piles of companies. We push the piles together. Think of a Venn diagram the overlapping securities become candidates for the portfolio, but we now have a problem, which is how to weight these securities. And uh, we actually have a risk optimization process that we built internally, uh, which, unlike traditional optimizers, isn't really focused on stuff like tracking error, but rather we are really just trying to uh, mitigate tail risk and create as much diversification within the portfolio as possible. And the sort of the intersection of those three processes yields what could be on the low side, 35 names. On the high side, it could be 75 or so, but typically it's right around 50 names. And we go through that process every single quarter. Bill, in your description there, you mentioned data feeds and uh, obtaining data from trusted resources. And I know ESG data is getting significantly better but from my perspective, it still seems like a pretty big challenge in this space where 
depending upon who's providing and evaluating the data, ESG ratings can be all over the board. I, I've seen numerous examples where you'll have one ESG ratings provider that will have a company very highly scored in a particular category, and then you'll see another that has that same company rated very poorly. I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about that challenge and how you're attempting to tackle it. Uh, Nate, really good point. Uh, what I would say about data, and it's funny because I go to a lot of industry conferences, as do you, and uh, generally speaking, ESG is kind of on everybody's mind, and right behind it is the poor quality of ESG data. And so I think, you know, I guess a couple points. One is the world can't really wait for the data to be perfect, and I will tell you that the data gets better all the time. Uh, I have a little bit of a perspective that comes through engaging uh, with companies, and specifically I'm involved in engaging with a member of the S&P 500 uh, that um, is a target of something called Climate Action 100 Plus, which means that uh, if, you know, if we are going to decarbonize our economies around the world, there, there's really about 150 companies that we can't do it without. That's one way to think about um, that particular process. And the thing that I've learned through that process is that this is very much happening. Companies are being, uh, you know, sometimes willingly, but frequently unwillingly, are basically being forced to be more transparent around some of these off-balance sheet risks. And uh, and because of that, and, but, but there's this huge lag, right, because a company might um, file its annual corporate sustainability report in the month of May right before their AGM, which is in June, and the reality is that data is based on the previous year or a couple of years' worth of behavior. So here we are at the end of 2021. We're looking at data, actually, which is generally speaking from 2020 and 2019. That's what ESG product people have to work with. And so the biggest, I think the single biggest problem is just kind of the latency of the data coupled with the fact that I think companies have ways of, of you know, optimizing how they present the data and in some cases just leaving it out entirely. But it is getting better all the time. And I also think that increasingly with advances in AI and big data, there's just really kind of fewer places to hide. To your last point there, I, I find that really interesting. I mean, how do you handle companies who either don't report ESG data um, or perhaps there's it's questionable ESG data? I mean, is the assumption that they're they're hiding something and so they get negative scores? How do you handle that? Yeah, so this is <laughs> this gets kind of hard, right? So um, we have adopted an approach at Stance where we try and be as unemotional as, as possible. And I'll give you a really good example. Uh, you may remember kind of maybe in Q1 of this year, there was uh, the Barron's piece about the 50 companies in the S&P 500 that um, essentially pay no taxes, right? And I saw that piece and I you know, keenly looked up the list thinking, boy, I hope none of them are in my portfolio. Uh, and it turned out probably 13 of the 50 were in the portfolio. I might be exaggerating. Maybe it was eight or nine. But the point is, I was thinking, well, that's not a very good look from an ESG standpoint. But the reality is, one of the things that we try and do as managers is think about uh, issues like that within the context of other things. So you never want to overreact 
to finding out that a company you own doesn't pay taxes if you've determined that paying taxes is not good. However, what about the other things that they might be doing well? What about the fact that maybe they are in the process of dramatically transitioning their revenues from being carbon intensive to carbon light? Or the fact that they are doing a lot as it relates to diversity and inclusion or or anything else, right? So the point is, is that we have 24 key performance indicators because there's 24 things, number one, that we need to look at. Number two, we've got to assign a weight, a relative weight to each of these things. And it turns out that, you know, paying taxes is about two and a half percent of the score that we give a typical company. So I think the, um, I think the issue of data and the sort of the ground truth having to do with that data is always going to be an issue. I think the biggest single issue is just the fact that the data is old. It's less so that I think companies are, uh, you know, trying to misguide investors. I mean, that does happen certainly, but I think that the biggest issue is, is, is that it's old, and I do think that just um, technology is going to solve that because we're not going to be necessarily waiting for a big industrial company, you know, to submit their next CSR filing. We're going to actually be able to pull updates out of news releases, out of press releases, out of other documents that we can obtain with or without their, um, you know, involvement or consent. Bill, as we mentioned, you are taking an active approach here. And so I have to ask you the question I ask just about every active manager who comes on this podcast, which is that if you look at the data, the bottom line is it's tough for active managers to consistently outperform the market. And so the question I have for you is why should an investor consider STNC versus an index-based approach? Does it come down to your ESG approach here? Uh, well, I'd say, Nate, there's two questions in there. You know, one is why invest in – uh, stance versus another active manager. Another question is, you know, active versus index. On the active versus index front, let me say that I think that ESG is an obvious place for active management for reasons that I actually just described, right? There's, um, there's, there's issues with ESG data that uh, active managers can uh, work around. They don't need to rely purely on CSR data or feeds from, you know, Bloomberg or Sustainalytics. They can do their own research. They can augment it. And that's stuff that you're not going to get in a passive fund. So that's point number one. Point number two on passive versus active is it's, it's really interesting. Like, you know, I, I need to describe what I do as a semi-concentrated portfolio, but shouldn't the S&P 500 also? I mean, you now have uh, and you probably know this better than I do, but I think you've got the top seven or eight names in the S&P 500 that account for 25% of the index, right? So I think that one of the and, – and furthermore, they are mostly very sector sort of biased or specific. So you've got, you know, mega cap tech and comm services with maybe one exception that it represent the top – eight names uh, within the S&P 500 and, you know, nearly 25% of the index. And so I think one of the values of, of active management is being able to actively manage risk. And so one of the ways in which we do that is to avoid being top-heavy or overloaded um, 
you know, in in you know a handful of names, and in specifically in you know one or two segments of the economy. So, I think that's a big piece of it. I think with respect to why STNC versus another active manager, I mean, a piece of it is sort of in what I just said, in that I think a lot of ESG is uh, growth oriented, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, in fact, where would you rather be, probably, for the last seven or eight years? But not every investor is comfortable being a growth investor in, in any market. And certainly there's investors who aren't comfortable being overweight growth in this current market. And so I think one of the things that Stance does that is very unique is that we are truly a, uh, a core manager. And in fact, sometimes, you know, Morningstar has given us five stars that have been actually uh, and, and they've tilted us, you know, into the into the value camp. And so, um, the, the real point is that um, we at STNC, it's a core strategy versus a growth strategy. We think that it's a great natural complement to either an ESG growth strategy or something else. And then, you know, I think the um, kind of the related point in there is that um, if you only invest in big tech companies that don't have a carbon problem to begin with, and your motivation as an ESG investor is to manage climate risk, you're not really doing anything to solve that problem. And so we view that there is a role for a manager like us who is investing across as much of the economy as possible, obviously avoiding things like thermal coal and weapons and tobacco. But generally speaking, we're not afraid to invest in industrials or materials companies, because these, these industries are not going away. It's just that there's going to be winners and losers. And we think that the ESG framework gives us unique insight into who those winners and losers are actually going to be. And so we can position our clients appropriately. Just about a minute left here. I did want to note that you're using one of the quote-unquote semi-transparent structures. It's the blue tractor shielded alpha approach. Which, interestingly, that's actually pretty transparent, right? Because investors can see all of the holdings every single day. Uh, they're just at different weights. But can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to use that structure? Yes. So, first of all, we did want to protect, um, you know, our own intellectual property. And the idea of actually publishing holdings and weights on a daily basis uh, didn't have a ton of appeal to us um, Blue Tractor, so, so the interesting thing for an ESG investor, uh, you do want to know what you own. You, you just said this, Nate. So I think that as we looked at the various um, uh, semi-transparent wrappers available to us, all of the other ones actually disguised what you owned, and that's the one thing an ESG investor cares about. They don't necessarily care about, do I own, you know, two and a half percent of Humana or 2.9 percent, what they care about is do I own Humana or do I own, you know, a tobacco company? And so um, the blue tractor approach to semi-transparency, I think, is tailor-made for the ESG industry. Well, Bill, excellent discussion today. We did not have time to get to the debate portion of the conversation. I think most people know I'm a little bit of an ESG skeptic, so we'll definitely have to have you back on to uh, to go through some of my favorite rebuttals. But really, excellent spotlight today. Congratulations on the ETF. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, and I'll come back and debate you on that anytime. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that was Bill Davis, founder of Stance Capital. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. 
Next week, it'll be a best of ETF Prime. Haven't done one of these uh, this year. I have some excellent interviews to play, so uh, certainly hope you'll join me for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone. 